All right. Well, um, we are continuing, of course, through Lent, and we are moving towards Easter. And in today's passage is out of the Gospel of John. And out of the Gospel of John, we are in the place where uh, Jesus is having his last public discourse with people. He's still got a pretty lengthy teaching to do in private, but this is the last thing he's saying out in public. And uh, John, uh, for those of you that kind of aren't familiar with the nature of the four different Gospels, of course, our Bible has four Gospels. That's that's, uh, the story of Jesus according to four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They overlap a lot. They use some of the same stories. In fact, uh, Matthew and Luke probably borrow stories from Mark, which came, you know, was written first. And, and then you have John. And John just kind of does John's own thing, right? And, and John, uh, Jesus, uh, it, I would say it feels like in John that Jesus kind of floats about a foot above the ground. He's a little, he's a little less uh, um, needy or a little less uh, human, it feels like, in the Gospel of John sometimes. I mean, remember the Gospel of John starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. I mean, it's big and grandiose and, and you know, cosmic and all these kind of things in John. And, and John just does things in different orders. So it's in the second chapter of John where we see Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. It's not right before the crucifixion. And, and so things are in all different orders. And so um, at this point in John's story, Jesus is already really in the thick of things in Jerusalem. Uh, he is on the way to the cross. He is there uh, during Passover, uh, and these verses immediately follow John's telling of the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday. Now, on the Christian calendar, Palm Sunday hasn't happened yet, so we're kind of going out of order. Um, I don't know why they put them in this order, but that's fine. Uh, we haven't gotten there to Palm Sunday yet, this Lent, but at the very end of Palm Sunday, and at the very end of this triumphal entry into town, uh, in John's Gospel, uh, you have this, this, this little verse where uh, the kind of the religious powers that be are starting to get frustrated and scared by Jesus. It's not what you see happen in the other Gospels, but what you see happen in John. In fact, John chapter 12, verses 18, which is technically one verse before when the lectionary text starts tonight. But it says this, uh, verse 18 says, Many people, because they had heard uh, that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him, right? And so uh, you have these, uh, the religious powers that be that are upset. Um, just before all this, in, in, in the Gospel of John, before the triumphal entry, you have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, who's uh, the only person really named as Jesus' friend, uh, dies. Uh, Jesus takes his time uh, getting to him before he dies. He doesn't get there in time to heal him. Both of Lazarus' sisters are upset about it, and they have this whole encounter that happens, and then Jesus goes, and he literally raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb, and this, of course, makes local news. People are talking about this, right? And then you have the triumphal entry, and uh, the triumphal entry in John doesn't quite feel quite as embarrassing as it does in the other ones, um, where, you know, he's riding in on this little donkey, and it kind of should feel like very anticlimactic, but, and you have this buildup happening in John, and then the powers that be, the Pharisees that are there, are getting upset because their, their efforts to limit Christ's influence are not working. And so they say, look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, uh, this is massive hyperbole, okay? Uh, you have to understand, Jesus is still 
really not very significant in the, in the world at large. There's a very small area, very small percentage of people that he's even talked to or that have heard him teach. Um, he, again, rode into town on a little donkey, uh, didn't exactly have an army with him. He's very unimportant in the grand scheme of things. But they are keying in on some idea. Um, the religious leaders are beginning to see that there is some kind of appeal that Jesus has that transcends just some small, weird, little religious sect. Uh, just, you know, a few zealots that kind of follow this one crazy guy. And you have to understand, there were many people at the same time of Jesus who were claiming to be the Messiah, many people who developed their own followings and people who listened to their teachings and uh, who would maybe, you know, try to overthrow Rome or do all kinds of things. He was, Jesus was one among many. But something is starting to happen where these religious leaders are realizing he's got some kind of appeal He's drawing some people in that wouldn't kind of normally fit in, in that category. Uh, in this next section, we begin to see that while they are definitely overstating uh, that the whole world has gone to him, um, they are on to something. Something different is happening with Jesus. In fact, something that we won't see come to fullness until after Jesus is gone, right? Verse 20 says this, Now we're, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. So right after the Pharisees start saying, man, the whole world's coming to this guy. Something is going on here. This is, this is not just this small little band of weirdos. Something else is happening. Immediately following the Pharisees voicing their fears, we have a version of those fears coming true, Right? You have some Greeks who show up, and they're looking for Jesus. Now, they may have been Greek Jews, or they may have been uh, converts, or uh, they may have not had really anything to do with Judaism. We don't know. Either way, they are not who normally is in the circle. They are not uh, the tried and true kind of Hebrew Jews that would be you know, in, in there in the temple participating in everything. They represent kind of a widening of the circle. These are not folks that you would assume would feel welcome coming in and asking to meet the rabbi, right? They represent an orientation and a direction of the mission and impact of Christ, and that orientation and impact is outward. It's expanding to new places and bringing in new people, right? There are certain assumed boundaries that are already getting pressed upon with Jesus, and that triggers two things that you see happening right away. New people start showing up. The kind of people that aren't supposed to show up start showing up, and two things happen right away. Verse 22, it says, after they go to Philip, it says, Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So they came to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. And here's the first thing uh, that, that I think happened. These outsiders showing up triggers the followers of Jesus to have a committee meeting. I'm not sure if you grow up in church or not. And I wish I had a really, really deep theological point about this. I don't necessarily. I just kind of think it's funny. I would love to have some deep and profound point. But I just, I, I think it's funny because it rings so true, right? The followers of Jesus all of a sudden had to gather and figure out what, what exactly to do about this. It triggered a committee meeting. And I think it's funny because I've been in a lot of those committee meetings. Um, I, this is not the only church I've been a part of. And, and uh, you, something you should know about this church is we're, uh, we're weird, we don't really have committee meetings, and this kind of thing doesn't happen. When someone comes in the door, I've, I've literally never had someone come in the door uh, who everyone thought shouldn't be here, and then had a group of people call me that week and say, what are we going to do about so-and-so showing up? It's never happened 
here at Ecclesia. It's one of the things I like most about Ecclesia. But I've had, I've been in a bunch of these kind of committee meetings, right? Uh, I've had meetings because a guy, this shows how long I've been in church, a guy with an earring showed up and started coming to church. Uh, and we had to talk about that for obvious reasons, uh, because you, you, you can't have that kind of thing happening in the church, right? Um, we had a youth that showed up to church on a Sunday morning wearing a Marilyn Manson t-shirt, and we had to have a committee meeting about that, um, which honestly is exactly what that kid wanted to have happen. The whole reason he wore that Marilyn Manson shirt, I know that kid, was because he wanted to freak out the older people in the church. And it worked. They were freaking out. They did not know what to do. We had a lengthy meeting about whether or not we were allowed to invite him back to church because he wore a Marilyn Manson. And not because it was bad music, uh, which is really the, the most offensive part about it. Uh, but, you know, that, we had to talk about that. Um, I, I would say a meeting, except I didn't get a chance to talk. But I've had a meeting where a gay couple showed up and had the audacity to like the church and want to come back. And this triggered a big meeting uh, that, where I was at uh, at the time because, I mean, just imagine them wanting to come back. I mean, what, you, what, what in the world are you supposed to do with that, right? Uh, so when every time I've, when I've been in church settings and whatever kind of circle we had established, spoken or unspoken, started to get violated when people from outside of what we thought was comfortable and acceptable started to show up, it triggered a meeting. We had to get together and figure out what to do about it. Um, and, and again, I wasn't even in really super fundamentalist churches like some of you kind of grew up in. I've heard stories. But we still had these meetings. We were kind of cool churches, and we still had these kind of meetings. Virtually every time someone who stretched our definition of belonging would show up, we called a huddle. We would freak out at least a little. And then really the question became, how do we protect the boundaries? How do we protect the boundaries, right? Otherwise, we might just get overrun with those kind of people because God knows if you don't say anything about one Marilyn Manson t-shirt, there's going to be five next week. And pretty soon, he's leading worship, right? It's just kind of the, 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 the way that we, the posture that we had. Now, I, Philip does this, Andrew does this, it happens right here, but at least in this case, unlike pretty much all the meetings I just referred to uh, and I just mentioned, uh, at least in this case, Eventually, Jesus was involved in the discussion, which, is, which would have been nice in the committee meetings. I was a part of as well. I can't say that he came up much in those meetings, but eventually it gets to him, although at first you get this sense that they are trying to figure out what to do, right? That's the first thing that happens is, you know, they, they call a committee. Second, verse 23, when they finally let Jesus know the Greeks want to come and see him, Jesus replied, and this is a, I've never noticed it in, in this passage till now. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's a reference to his own death and resurrection. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The second thing that happens is that Jesus now identifies, oh, now is when I die. Now is when I go to the cross. And this is important in the Gospel of John because up to this point, Jesus has only said it was not his time, right? Um, nothing else triggered this with Jesus where he said, oh, now's the time where I'm going to end up on the cross, right? Jesus even had a group of people trying to kill him, and he kind of walks magically through that crowd and, doesn't, and remains untouched and says, oh, it's not my time, right? It is striking to me that these Greeks wanting to see him, those who are outside the circle wanting to see him, is what causes Jesus to say his time to die is coming quickly, right? Not turning over the tables in the temple, not raising the dead, not talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, which he should have never done, not even the triumphal entry, right? 
So it isn't the heresy, it isn't the necromancy, it isn't the sedition or the morally unacceptable behavior. But now those outside the norm are attempting to come in, and we can't have that. In Jerusalem, there were some concessions made for the Greeks. There were parts of the temple grounds they were allowed to go into. They were allowed to participate to some degree, but there were limits. There were still boundaries. They didn't get full citizenship, full participation in what the community was doing. They don't get to come to the center. And now these folks are showing up and they're asking for and getting direct access to the rabbi, to the teacher, to the person who claims to be the center. No hurdles, no boundaries. They want access to the center and they're given it. They're given access to the one who seems intent on replacing the entire temple worship system and all the hurdles people must jump over to gain access. And Jesus realizes and seems to confess right here, when this happens, he goes, ah, this is how you get killed in religion. You can get away with a lot, but you can't get away with this. And I don't know if you've picked up on that, and I think that's very true of church in general. I've, I, I've gone to church with all kinds of people who were uh, mean, selfish, racist, I mean, you name it. Like, outwardly, we all knew it, and they still got to come to church. And I know lots of people who invited people in who weren't supposed to be there, and they were gone. This will get you gone in religious circles. This is how you get killed in religion. Always has been, always will be. I think that's, that, that's striking to me. That Jesus says this here in, this, in, the, in the Gospel of John. But what he says next to me is, is, is very poignant and important. And we want to spend some time on that too. Because it appears to Jesus that getting killed isn't the worst thing that can happen. Verse 24. Finally acknowledging that he's going to end up on a cross. The next thing Jesus says is, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And Jesus uses this powerful, beautiful image of the power of the kind of death that comes from love. Now, let me do an aside here real quick. That anyone, uh, anyone who uh, loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. Understand that this, that's been, I've heard that talked about in ways that I think are kind of dangerous, right? It doesn't mean that if you don't hate yourself, you're not doing something right. It's not encouraging you uh, to help self-hatred. That's obviously not, to me, obviously not what Jesus is talking about here. So don't, don't read it that way. But this image that he gives of this seed, to me, is a very powerful one. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever lived in one place long enough to have watched a large tree grow from nothing. But it's one of those things that we just kind of don't really see or acknowledge. But it's really kind of amazing if you just take a moment and think about it, right? right? We tend to see seeds and we tend to see trees. But we rarely stay any place long enough to watch one become the other. And it's kind of a miracle when it does. Go ahead and think about whatever the largest, most dense forest you've ever walked in or hiked through. And consider that all that was there, all that was in that topography, all that was on that hike, 
was once a, once a bunch of seeds that you could have picked up and carried if you just drew back the timeline far enough, right? It's a little bit insane when you really consider it. That forest was a bag of seeds that could have stayed static in the sack someplace or can completely change a landscape. The only thing that stands in the way of it realizing its potential, the only thing that needs to happen before it can provide shelter to birds and change the landscape and create oxygen for human life and all of that, the only thing that stands in the way is allowing it to fall and die and produce what comes next. It's really kind of a powerful image. And I would argue this is how the love we are designed to enact in this world functions as well. Truth is, I'm not sure if there's anything in my life, anything of value, that didn't come from some kind of little death. That didn't come from something being broken. It all came from something breaking open, something that I could have chosen to protect instead. I could give you a million examples, but I might as well skip to the most glaring one. Parenthood. I have no doubt that there will be nothing more important that comes from my life than my own kids. I couldn't love anything or anyone any more than I do. There couldn't be anything that changed my life more than they have. I mean, there is no greater expression of love in my life than than my kids, right? And, And I know a lot of you are that same way. Not my kids, but yours. Maybe my kids. They're great. I mean, I can understand that. I love being their father. And don't take only this sentence from the sermon, hear the rest out, but um, if I'm honest, I'll, I'll tell you that being their father feels like it kills me just a little bit all the time. In the best possible sense, but it feels like it kills me just a little bit all the time. And I'm not referring to the age-old jokes about what kids do to your social life or wallet or sex life or anything else. I'm talking about the way you suddenly have your own heart walking around on the outside of your chest out there in the world, right? The way you have to sacrifice your need for control. I had no idea I was a control freak until we had kids. Turns out I am, completely. My own need for assurance that everything will be okay, that everything will work the way it's supposed to, all that out the window, right? All that broken apart. The way you surrender so much of your will all of a sudden, right? It feels a lot like a seed falling to the ground and being broken open. Which is anything but easy. But it's also miraculous. I'm also getting to see something grow and and experience something more important and more meaningful than anything else I've had in my life, right? That's how we see the miracle. The seed always has to fall down and break open, right? It happens for your kids if you are a parent, and it happens for your religion when you follow Christ's call to love. You have to stop protecting the seed of control. You have to let go of the need to understand who is good and who is bad and why, and who should come in and who shouldn't and why. You have to let go of guarding the perimeters and protecting the institutions you have built. Because love and control can't occupy the same space. Because we can't have a posture of protection and investment at the same time. Love is risky. It often hurts. 
Love involves a little bit of death, and it's worth every moment, as hard as that pill is to swallow sometimes. And that is a hard pill to swallow. It's why we call the committee meetings. It's why the religious powers that be gnash their teeth and lash out. It's why Jesus ends up on a cross. And then what you see is when Jesus ends up on that cross, dies, is resurrected, what is sowed into those who he loved grows into something much, much bigger. In fact, Jesus says, you will do greater things than me in Scripture, which is kind of a crazy thing for God incarnate to say. This is the kind of sacrificial love we are called to because it's the thing that lasts. It's the thing that bears eternity within itself. This is what we are called to as this ragtag community of sacrificial love. We're not called to build an institution that needs protecting. We're not called, uh, we are not a community that exists to identify threats and avoid them at all costs. We are a community that is called to break itself open for those around them in the name of love. A community of people, a church, a family of people whose hearts walk around outside their bodies in this world that is so desperately in need of true love. We are called to be seeds broken so that we can become the kind of growth that gives oxygen to this world and changes the landscape altogether. This is our call. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are not a God who chose self-protection. We are grateful that you are a God who took flesh and blood and dwelt among us. You are a God who breathed the air we breathe. You are a God who suffered as we suffered, who bled as we bleed. That you are a God who was broken on behalf of those you love. And Lord, while that can be a very hard idea to wrap our minds around, that can be a very hard concept to sell. What we each know deep down is that this is the path to eternity. So Lord, may we be people who love as you love. May we choose investment over protection. Lord, may we open ourselves up. May we offer ourselves up so that we might change the landscape of the world that you so love. God, we do love you. And we ask all things in your name. Amen.